everyone, Anne Louise Gittleman, once again, for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, where we bring all of the nutritional lights and way showers in the field of health, healing, and the environment. And today I have a very special guest who's going to be talking to us about Lyme's disease because he's an expert with a newly written book called Recovery from Lyme Disease. It's not, none other than Daniel Kindelier. Hello, Dr. Kindelier. You're a nationally recognized physician with expertise in nutrition, allergy, and environmental medicine. Hello, hello. Hi, hi. Nice to talk. Nice to talk to you. Now, why did you write a book about Lyme disease, my friend? Well, you know, I had a practice in into what was what is now called integrative medicine and did a lot of nutrition, a lot of environmental medicine. And in 1996, I came down with this catastrophic illness. Oh my goodness. And when I finally recovered to the point where I was functional again, it was very clear to me that there were very few doctors who had any idea what this was about. So I dedicated myself to helping as many people as I could not have to go through what I went through. So and I opened up this practice so, you know, just dedicated to people with tick-borne infections and, and then wrote the book to pass on what I've learned. How prevalent is Lyme disease? I mean, everybody I talk to talks about Lyme disease. Is it really as prevalent as they say? It's worse. And here's what I mean. If you go back to 2017, the CDC reported they reported that there had been 40,000 40, odd cases reported to them, but they do some sort of algorithm and they realize doctors unreport or don't report by a factor of 10 to one. So they estimated that there were 400,000 some cases. However, their criteria for reporting are so restrictive that for every report, there's four to five other patients who would clinically would have Lyme disease. So take 400,000, multiply it, by four to five, and you have what one and a half million cases, new cases per year. And think about this, Anne Louise. It is now well accepted that at least 10 to 20 percent, and in some studies, even higher percentages go on to chronic illness, what is referred to as chronic Lyme. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But think about that 10 to 20 percent of over a million cases every year go on to chronic Lyme disease. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people developing a chronic illness every year. So do you think this was always prevalent but not diagnosed properly or is this a new occurrence? It's clearly increasingly prevalent. There's no question about that. It's been around, it's, I mean, remember the 5,000 year old man they found in in the Alps on the Italian Swiss border and he was encased in ice. Yes. Yeah, well, he had some foreign DNA on him and when they studied it, it turned out to be Lyme. So uh, it's been around a long time and there are outbreaks here and there that in retrospect probably were Lyme. This is a few hundred years ago, but there's no question that the prevalence has increased hugely for, for a whole number of reasons. So why do they call Lyme the great masquerader? Interesting because, you know, a very, very famous doctor over a century ago now referred to, to uh, 
syphilis as the great imitator. And that was because it could manifest in virtually any organ system and look like so many other diseases. And now we have an, another spirochete. And I'll just mention, he also said that, that uh, if you know syphilis, you know medicine because it has so many multi-systemic manifestations. But one, one Lyme doctor referred to syphilis as Lyme's dumb cousin because uh -huh. Lyme is incredibly more complex than syphilis spirochete. And what we'll get into is the fact that it's, it's, it's never just Lyme disease. It's always complicated with co-infections. So how did you know you had Lyme disease? What were your typical symptoms? And, I, and, I, and were you typical? I was not typical. But, but I was illustrative, and I'll tell you why. So first of all, I lived in an area that was somewhat Lyme endemic at the time, and now it's very Lyme endemic in Massachusetts, your state. And, <laughs> and uh, but this was in Eastern Massachusetts. As you know, it spread west from there. And uh, what happened was in August of 1996, I had shaking chills, fever to 104 degrees, I'm aching all over. And this lasted a few days, and then I was okay. And I figured, well, I had some sort of virus. I really didn't know what it was. So since I felt better, I was happy to ignore it, except that it recurred the next week. Again, I was better after a couple of days and then it recurred. So after, on, after the third episode, I said, okay, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't ignore this anymore. Denial's not working. And I went to a friend of mine who examined me. Interestingly, I had an enlarged spleen and he ran some blood tests and poof, it said I'm positive for Lyme disease. I thought, oh, I'm clear. I'll go on some antibiotics and I'll be fine, except that I got worse on the I, what happened was I stopped having fevers, but I started having sleep problems, like I stopped sleeping, mm. and I started having anxiety. I mean, I used to be, you know, relatively cool, calm, collected. I mean, I was a relaxed kind of guy, and now I was like nine out of ten anxious all the time. I couldn't sleep. I was shaking. I could really barely function and get through the day. Well, he, this is, there's a couple interesting things about this, Anne Louise. So after about a month of antibiotics, I call up a person who's considered maybe the Lyme expert in, of the world at that point. He was at my alma mater, Tufts University, New England Medical Center Hospital, and I presented my case. And after I presented it, he said, well, you don't have Lyme disease. And mm. I said, what do you mean? He said, you have something else. And I said, well, why don't I have Lyme disease? And he said, because if you did, you'd be better by now. And I said, well, what about the tests? I not only had been tested once, I'd been tested again a few weeks later and it was really a slam dunk. And he said, tests were wrong. And that was that. <laughs> oh and it was, it was amazing. And, you know, I, I put the phone down. I called up a friend of mine who, uh, lived in upstate New York, a doctor who I knew treated Lyme, and he said, welcome to the Lyme Wars. Mm. So, so what, what this doctor said was categorically wrong. I had Lyme disease, but he was also right that I had something else. I had a co-infection, Babesia, and Babesia 
is what was causing these high fevers, shaking chills, and was causing my sleep disturbances and anxiety. So I guess my question to you is, were you actually bitten by a tick? How did you contract the disease? I'm sure I was bitten by a tick. Most people do not see uh, the tick or tick bite. That is, these ticks are, they're really tiny people your age or my age. We're not likely to see them unless they're, um, uh, you know, in a really exposed area, often we feel them, but often they're in these intertriginous areas, you know, they, they like warm, moist areas, so they might end up in the armpit and the groin in the, between the buttocks and the scalp. Those are the most common places, although they, they can be anywhere. Most people do not see the tick. So the tick is by far the most common vector, but there are other ways to get it. An, an important way to get it, unfortunately, is uh, maternal fetus transmission. Oh my goodness, I've never heard that before. So, uh, so how does one? So, in in other words, you can you can be born with Lyme's, is what you're saying? Yes, sadly, you can be born with Lyme disease. Yes. So then, how is it definitively diagnosed? Well, that's a really good question. There are tests and then there are tests. And what I mean by that is it's a, it's a mess, okay? The, the, um, the CDC and the Infectious Disease Society of America recommend a screening test. It's an ELISA, an enzyme-linked antibody detection test. And a screening test should have at least a 95% recovery rate. That is, it shouldn't miss more than 5% of subjects that, that are being tested. Well, th they've actually demonstrated that, that in some cases, the ELISA test misses over 50% of the, of the people it tests. I mean, think about it, this is a screening test. Huge. And, um, it's unbelievable, it's unpardonable. Huge margin of error. That's just unacceptable. Yeah, and so it, it doesn't work, right? Think of a pregnancy test. This <laughs> is half of the pregnancies, right? So, so that and that's what they recommend is a screening test, and then they say if that's positive, then go on to the Western blot. Well, the the problem there is that most commercial labs do a lousy job with the Western blot. So my recommendation is to go to specialty labs. The, the lab that I prefer and recommend is in Palo Alto, California. It's iGenex Laboratory and all they do is tick testing. They do something called an immunoblot, um, which is um, probably about 90% sensitive. But the other side of that coin is you need to know how to interpret the test. You know, you come out with antibodies. Some antibodies are fairly specific for Lyme and some are totally nonspecific for Lyme. And you really know, need an educated practitioner to be able to interpret that test correctly. However, let me just point out that Lyme disease is particularly a clinical diagnosis in which the laboratory can support or, and, and often confirm it, but it can't rule it out. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I have a patient that I just saw recently. I don't see very many acute patients. My patients were recently infected. Most of my patients have been sick for years or even decades. But this lovely woman, about 60 years old, 
She, um, she was in Virginia. She had four tick attachments. She did have a rash. She went to a doctor. She got put on some antibiotics, but a month or more later, she's still sick and she uh, gets referred to me. And I said, okay, well, there's two problems. After, after I evaluated her, I said, there's two problems. One is you don't just have Lyme, you have Lyme and Bartonella, Bartonella being a very serious co-infection. I said, the other is you've had Bartonella since you were a teenager. And that's why you've had all these neuropsychiatric problems all your life. So <laughs> it gets complicated. It's very complicated, but you're hitting on these co-infections. Would you explain the co-infections of Babesia that you had, the Bartonella, the Ehrlichia that I've heard so much about and the Borrelia? I mean, are they, are they all tested for in these specialty labs? The answer is yes, they are tested for in the specialty labs, but the sensitivity for Bartonella testing and for Babesia testing is improving, but still not very good. I would say that most of my patients I still diagnose clinically, but, um, but the testing is getting better and we, need, we really need to continue to improve because I can tell you that the Babesia and Bartonella in particular, first of all, they're incredibly common as co-infections. And secondly, they're much worse than Lyme disease. You know, Anne Louise, I don't see Lyme disease by itself anymore. Huh. Of the five patients that uh, I've had with acute Lyme disease within the past nine months or so, one of them had two infections, one of them had three infections, the other, the other two had four infections. Okay. So, so are all these, let me ask you something that, that my listeners will be asking themselves or, or, ask, or thinking of themselves. And are these co-infections just part of what's in the tick itself? Is that, is that how it gets transmitted from the tick or the tick bite or the mosquito or however they get infected? You got it. So the tick is a veritable cesspool of, of microbes. You know, we know of a, of a handful of different infections that can be transmitted by this tick vector. I'm sure we'll be finding more. Uh, a colleague of mine, Joe Buriscano, a great Lyme doctor, he referred to the ticks as nature's dirty needle. Huh. See, that's not made clear. We hear about the co-infections, but it was never made clear to me how these co-infections kind of hopped on the bandwagon of Lyme. So what you're saying is that Lyme itself is not half as serious as the co-infections. What are the symptoms of Babesia, for example? What are the symptoms of Bartonella and Ehrlichia? So how would you clinically make that diagnosis if you didn't see anything really proven in a laboratory test? That's a great question, Anne-Louise, and we're getting into the art of medicine, right? Yes, but you're, but you're, a, you're a, uh, an artful medicine medical doctor, so I know you can handle it. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, I'll do my best. So first of all, when I see a new patient, remember that 99% of my patients have been sick for years or decades, most of them, right? And it takes about three hours to, to do a full evaluation on these patients. So I'm really doing a lot of detective work in my questioning. Now, I can tell you that most, most all the patients will have most of these symptoms, fatigue, brain fog or cognitive impairment, sleep disorder, neck pain, muscle and joint pain, um, did I mention sleep problems? 
And mm -hmm. often mood disorders, which we can talk about later, but anxiety, depression, irritability, really, really common. So those symptoms are common to actually to all the infections, that those symptoms don't tell us anything in terms of what microbe may be most prominent or causing the most problems, or maybe it's just all together. However, if someone has night sweats and fevers and shortness of breath and migraine headaches, they almost certainly have Babesia. If they have pains on the soles of the feet, often worse when they first get out of bed in the morning and little better as they walk around. It's a neuropathic pain that's almost always Bartonella. If the neurological symptoms and particularly the neuropsych symptoms predominate, it's usually Bartonella. So this is how we, you know, we tease apart the symptoms and say, hmm, I think it's likely this, I think it's likely that. And then, you know, we try to get laboratory confirmation, like I said, not always possible, particularly with Babesi and Bartonella. And then we can do therapeutic trials and see if people are responding to interventions directed at specifically at each bug. So how do you basically treat these things? You treat them with antibiotics or you treat them with herbs? I, I know a lot about the herbal kingdom in terms of integrative medicine. What is your most important therapy and strategies? Okay, so, you know, you can imagine how many times I've been asked, so how do you treat Lyme disease? Yeah. And, and you know, my answer is, and I think this is in the book somewhere, I, tell, I say to people, I don't treat Lyme disease. I treat people, they're all different. There's no cookbook, but I can generalize. And I can tell you that when people have been sick for a long time, the first thing we look at is infrastructure, something I'm sure you can you appreciate. So what's happening with their digestion in their gut? What's happening in terms of their endocrine status in particular? And are they in a moldy environment, et cetera? We work a lot on diet and, and nutrition. These are things, if they're significantly out of balance, we, we wanna get those things into balance before we start hitting the bugs, okay? And then ideally, I do put people on pharmaceutical antibiotics, always one at a time to see how they tolerate it. And then I add, I start adding botanical antimicrobials. So now we're hitting it from different directions. And over time, I leave them on the botanicals and I take away the pharmaceuticals. Now that's ideal, okay? I mean, because it doesn't work in everybody. So there are many patients, this is really interesting, Anne-Louise. I have more patients who don't tolerate the herbal antibiotics than don't tolerate the, than tolerate the, I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, the pharmaceuticals. More people tolerating the pharmaceuticals than the, the herbals. That's fascinating. And I've heard that in the case of limes as well. Yeah, but... it's, it's so crazy, but I've, I've learned to expect it or not be surprised when it happens. And we always go slowly with the dosing because there can be some really major Herxheimer reactions, which are, which are basically die-off reactions. Uh, so we go very slowly with these things. But I have patients, well, I just saw a kid this week. 
he had pans. Are you aware, you know what the pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome I've is? heard an awful lot about them. I've seen Facebook groups, pans and pandas I've seen. Yes. So, you know, we can get that into that more detail. But the bottom line is, you know, here's a kid who's two years old, starts tantruming over the top, and he's getting into fights all the time, and he's oppositional, and he's ADD and doesn't do well in school, and he's complaining of joint pains, and he gets tired easily. And the first thing we did, um, I put him on a diet, and I said, you know, uh, given what he's eating and what he's craving, I think you need to take him off sugar, yeast, and dairy. And immediately, <laughs> it was better, like 50%. And then we put him on, on some herbs just to hit Lime and Bartonella, we did that one at a time. And I talked to the mother just two days ago and he's like 90%. Wow. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think he won't, he won't need the, um, the, the uh, pharmaceutical antibiotics. On the other hand, long-term, what do we do? It's really not known because I don't think we're eradicating these bugs most of the time. And we have no test that says the bucket, the bug is gone, or the buck is the bug's still here. It, we just don't have a test that tells us that. So, do you think that there are common comorbidities that allow Lyme to flourish? Yes, and and it's interesting because Lyme disease sort of invites these things. And what I mean is, certainly comorbidities can precede, such as food sensitivities, nutritional imbalances, and exposures to heavy metals and mold, and, and genetic problems, particularly methylation issues, right? So all of those can precede the illness, but then once people get sick with Lyme disease and their immune system goes somewhat wacko, they go into hyperinflammatory states as well as immune suppression, and then they develop multiple sensitivity syndromes. I would say half my patients at least are sensitive to gluten. Gluten, dairy, and eggs are the most common foods, but sometimes people are just sensitive to a whole bucket full. And then people develop mast cell activation disorder. And then some people you know, go on to develop multiple chemical sensitivities. And now I have patients with electromagnetic field sensitivities. But people develop thyroid and pituitary dysregulation. Now they, they lived with mold and it didn't cause them a problem. Now they have major problems with mold and they often accumulate mold toxins. And that's going to further suppress their immune system, make it difficult to treat the infections. They develop hyperviscosity viscosity syndrome so the circulation decreases and you know it's harder for the blood to get through those capillaries and and uh, deliver nutrients and oxygen I mean there's a that's why my book is almost 400 pages long there's so many things that can go wrong once you get these infections and I want to point out that in some way the infection itself isn't it's not the main problem. It's our response to the infection. It's, it's the seed and the soil, right? Um, that, that Always. There, yeah, there are some people who get these infections and they're totally asymptomatic and they just came from the really good gene pool. Yeah. And there are others of us who, 
like us Ashkenazic Jews, right, who tend to have more uh, genes that predispose to autoimmune issues, and we're going to have a whole lot more problems when when encountering these bugs and developing severe inflammatory syndromes. So does your book, I mean, the subtitle is The Integrative Medicine Guide to the Diagnosis and Treatment of Tick-Borne Illness. Do you actually integrate the clinical, medical, conventional use of drugs and antibiotics with the herbs and natural remedies? All of the above. I mean, really all of the above. Yeah. I mean, I have people on intravenous antibiotics too. I, I remember years ago having clients in Massachusetts. I had a, I had a, um, I had an office in Lenox that were on intravenous uh, antibiotics for like two or three years, and that was the only thing that was controlling the pain. So, are there more areas in the country that are more susceptible to Lyme and its co-infections? Yes, you know, I'm so glad you asked that. So, people, people typically associate. Connecticut, you know, Lyme, Connecticut, and then of course, New England and the Middle Atlantic states. Those have been well established, but guess what? It turns out that the very first case of Lyme disease described in the United States was Wisconsin in huh. 1971. Huh. And, and the Great Lakes states also are a place that are highly endemic and the Northwest is highly endemic. Basically, you're, you're talking about any place that's that's more humid, that you know, that's the ticks prefer the humidity. So the best place to live is probably New Mexico. But <laughs> New Mexico but, or Arizona these days. Yeah, except New Mexico, except Arizona, they keep on watering the lawns. Big mistake. But oh. but, but but I want to point out, and this is so important. Um, the southeast has a lot of Lyme disease. I see patients. I have a whole bunch of patients in the southeast. It's just not diagnosed as much. So, you know, the numbers aren't there because the doctors aren't recognizing it, right? And, um, and Lyme disease has been reported in all 50 states. It's not like there's anywhere that's safe. There's anywhere where, you know, the ticks don't cross the border, right? right. But, but the crazy thing is doctors don't realize that. Just this week, I've encountered two patients, one of whom got four tick bites in Florida. She got really sick from it. She goes to her doctor in Colorado who says, well, this can't be Lyme disease because there's no Lyme disease in Florida. Huh. Well, she actually had Lyme Babesi and Bartonella and thank God she's much better. I talked to her this week, but, but it turns out Florida has a lot of Lyme disease. And then there was someone else I heard from whose doctor said, well, there's no Lyme disease in California. Well, there's Lyme disease throughout California, but Northern California is actually endemic for Lyme disease. And there've been a whole lot of tick studies where they actually demonstrate that, yeah, these ticks are infected. So it's all over the country, but why is there such a controversy? You talked about the Lyme disease wars. Why is there such a controversy surrounding this problem? It's crazy. So. The Lyme disease wars comes down to these two schools of thought. The Infectious Disease Society of America says, yes, there are uh, this infection. They actually acknowledge it's an epidemic, but they say easily diagnosed, easily treated. And then there's doctors like myself who say not so easily diagnosed, often complicated with co-infections and other comorbidities 
and often difficult to treat and requiring long-term treatment. Those are the two schools of thought. And how did we get there? It's bizarre. It's, it's really bizarre. Basically, doctors got it wrong in the beginning and with egos and, and you know, different financial issues, you know, they, they really just haven't changed their mind. And it, it doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's like the political realm, people believing things that are just, just are so irrational. Um, so I would say there is a, there is slow movement towards accepting that, th that th it is, that the chronic Lyme is real. You know, one of the things I want to point out is that there's basically two groups of people who, who have chronic Lyme. And one is those people who get treated uh, with a few weeks of an antibiotic because they had a tick bite or a rash and, or a flu syndrome, and then they continue to be ill. And they're called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which I think is a very unfortunate nomenclature because it suggests the Lyme isn't there anymore. And what I can tell you is they, not only is the Lyme there, but they have co-infections and that's why they didn't get better from the antibiotics. But there's a probably a much bigger group who never knew they had acute Lyme disease. They never saw the tick, they never saw a rash, they didn't have the flu syndrome where they misinterpreted the flu syndrome as the flu. And they went on to have chronic illness. And those people are typically are labeled chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, some autoimmune disorder, or quite commonly neuropsychiatric diagnosis because that can predominate the anxiety, panic attacks, depression, uh, even, even psychosis in some cases. Uh, it, the, the neuropsych symptoms can be awful like they were in me, quite frankly. And um, it's so that those aren't recognized. <laughs> They just aren't recognized really as part of Lyme disease is only, you know, this acute thing. And if, and at any point you give people three weeks of antibiotics, it's gone. I actually think the biggest difference between the two schools is the co-infections. I don't see, I just don't see Lyme anymore. I, I always see Lyme complicated by co-infections. So the, the co-infections are actually paras parasites, if I'm not mistaken? Well, they're not, well, I should, let me say this. They're mostly bacteria, but, but Babesia is a protozoa in the same family, more or less, as malaria. Interesting. Before I let you go, tell me about PANS. Wow. Okay. So 1994, Susan Sweeto at the National Institutes of Mental Health described these kids who were totally normal, and then they got a strep infection, and then they fell off the cliff. They developed OCD and anxiety and other mood and behavioral disorders, cognitive decline, they're losing it in school. And she named this PANDAS. Uh, PANDAS would stand for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychic neuropsychiatric disease associated with streptococcal infections. But then it turned out it's not only strep that does this. So it turns out some viruses do like Epstein-Barr virus and even some common cold viruses and even HIV, but also some bacteria, including uh, some tick-borne bacteria, particularly Bartonella 
And mycoplasma, which is a respiratory pathogen, but can also be tick-borne and be a tick-borne co-infection. And I'm sure we'll find more and more of these. So a lot can produce this neuropsychiatric syndrome. And what we're talking about is, here's an autoimmune encephalitis. And I'll just, let me explain for your listeners what, what, what that is and refer to rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever is when you get a strep throat and then antibodies to the strep attack the heart valve because there is a structural similarity between the strep pathogen and the cells in the heart valve. So in a sense, the immune system gets confused. It looks like the same target. We have now an autoimmune reaction against our heart valves. And we also have an infection. We have strep infection and autoimmunity. That's, it's called um, molecular mimicry. And it, the same thing is happening in PANS, except now the antibodies are attacking the brain. These kids got, have brain on fire. And this is a, a huge deal because, you know, we did a, a study here in, in Colorado, mind you. Uh, we uh, selected, we didn't select, uh, at random, we tested 10 kids at a residential treatment center up in Estes Park. It's at the foot of the Rockies. And this, in the, these kids all had DSM-5 major depressive disorder, and they had multiple other diagnoses. And I, three or four of them had made serious suicide attempts. They couldn't hack it at home. They, they, um, uh, they couldn't go to school at all. And they didn't have any known organic illness. And when we tested them, depending on the interpretation of the test, somewhere between six and nine of them had evidence of tick-borne infections. Wow. And nine, nine out of 10 of them had positive Cunningham panels. And that's the test for the antineuronal antibodies that we see in PANS. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I think, I really think this is an epidemic. And I had a case just published of a girl who came in with anorexia nervosa and she was about 16 years old, refusing to eat. She was in and out of clinics and you know, had this body distortion images. And her mother was pretty savvy. They had lived in upstate New York, another endemic area. And, and uh, she was positive for Lyme, they brought her in to see me. She had four tick-borne infections. She had Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, and Mycoplasma. And oh this my is, goodness. And this is really fascinating, Anne Louise. The Bartonella in some people causes these striations in the skin that can look like stretch marks, although they're not in the normal skin planes for stretch marks and they're not associated with weight gain. And she had these, these, these red lines on her thighs and she interpreted them as stretch marks and indicative of that of how overweight she was. Huh. Isn't that amazing? So uh. at any rate, we treated her. She, we had her on antibiotics for a few months. She was on oral antibiotics and some herbs for a year. And she's in total remission. For, she has not had any eating disorder for the past three or four years now. So as we conclude, let me ask you this question. Are you taking new patients, Dr. Kindelair? Um, the answer is yes, but few and far between. I just can't fit them in. 
that means you're good. You're good at what you do. Would you suggest everybody runs out and gets your book, Recovery from Lyme's Disease? Absolutely, and buy 10 and give them to your friends. <laughs> Can I use that line? I like it. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for being my guest. This has been most illuminating. I mean, I never I, I know how serious Lyme's disease is. I didn't realize it was such a problem and it's a growing epidemic and it's a hidden epidemic. Wouldn't you just continue to say that? You know, I do. It's really, it's, it's so unfortunate. There is actually, there have been some articles about uh, people with the long COVID or long hauler syndrome, post-COVID syndrome, and, and they're getting validity. You know what I mean? That like, there's a, there's a general acknowledgement in the medical profession that these people are real. And the Lyme community is saying, hey, what about us? Maybe, maybe this- will take us seriously as well. Exactly. So I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I hope you'll come back again sometime. I'd love to, Annelise. Lovely to chat with you online, offline. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in yet once again to First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Visit me at annelise.com. Thank you to my sponsors, unikeyhealth.com, cs-health.com for their wonderful products. Have a beautiful week, my friends. Peace, love, and shalom. Shalom.